to James chapter 1 and verse 16, and we will be focusing tonight on verses 12 through 18, James chapter number 1, and we'll be focusing on 12, verses 12 through 18, however, we will only read one short verse in verse number 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Do not err. And so for a few moments uh, tonight, I want to speak to you. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The crown. The crown. Lord, we thank you and praise you. We worship you. We thank you for your word and what it means to us. We pray that it would strengthen every listener that has come into the house of God here and online we pray that you would encourage uplift and help us through your word in jesus name we pray amen god bless you can be seated uh, here tonight have your bibles if you have them follow along tonight because we're going through the book of james and we're going verse by verse verse number 16 is where we took our text but in actuality, we want to start in verse number 12. Verse number 12, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, when he is tried or when he is tested, everyone say tested. When he is tested, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. James in verse number 12 returns back to the theme of trials that he talked about in verses 2 through 4. The word trial is included both in verses 2 through 4 and here. It's the same word, the idea of being tried or tested. And so in verse number 12, it picks up again the testing of verse number 3, to endure. Amen. The enduring is the same word as being steadfast. So he picks up the same two words, trial and steadfast, and he uses tried and endure. They both have the same meaning. And so he's going back and he's looking at, in the life of the believer, how trials, difficulties, and things that test us have a place and how it plays into our walk with God. Amen. While earlier in the text, steadfastness was a product of testing. In other words, you would go through testing and it would produce a steadfastness in you. That means a stick to itiveness, steadfastness. A trial would, would make you consistent. Anyone thankful for consistent people in the house of God? Being steadfast means that you are consistent, means that you are Faithful means that you can be relied upon, means that you are not a flake, but you are somebody that is steadfast. A church is only as strong as steadfast people, praise God. And so in that beginning uh, passage, he's talking about a product of testing, which is steadfastness. But here in this passage, he says that there is a blessing that comes on those who endure the trial. And what he is suggesting is that a Christian, a believer, should practice being steadfast in order to achieve 
a steadfast, settled character. What he is saying there is you have to practice at it. How many tonight did not feel like coming to church? Oh, come on. Be honest. (laughs) Probably just about the majority of us, because as Brother Brock has already mentioned, sometimes it's difficult when you go through a full day. But you practiced steadfastness because you said it's important that I'm in the house of God. And so I'm going to put it to practice. It doesn't happen naturally. It doesn't come naturally. Praise God. But I'm going to do it anyway because I want to be consistent in my walk with God. It takes an effort. It takes an effort to worship God and to praise God. You know what happens, though, when you do that? There's an uplifting and an encouragement that comes because God knows where you are. He knows where you've walked today, and he knows you need an uplift in your spirit. And so when you praise him, he lifts you up. So if you haven't praised him, I would encourage you to clap your hands unto the Lord, lift your voice and say, God, I want you to know I may be tired, but I'm still going to give you praise. Hallelujah. I'm going to give you praise. I'm going to practice. I'm going to practice steadfastness. Amen. It's like an athlete that endures, endures bodily stress in order to achieve a high level of physical endurance. You're not going to reach that place unless you practice that. It takes an effort in order to achieve the goal that you are reaching for. In terms of a believer, we have to endure the trials of life in order to attain the spiritual endurance that will bring us where we need to be. Nobody likes trials. Everybody wants the results without the pain. And the old saying is, there's no pain, there's no gain with no pain. You're not going to achieve anything without putting forth an effort. It's the same way spiritually. Everybody wants the results, but they don't want the difficulty and, and being steadfast and practicing what it takes to get through the testing. Praise God. I'm in it because I want to live for God. Praise God. I'm going to endure some things because I want the success and the results that come with the enduring. Praise God. God intends to make something of you and that means you're going to go through some difficulties. But if you stay in there, you stay steadfast, you'll reap the benefits of staying true and faithful to what God has called you to be. You don't get the results without the effort. Praise God. Amen. As an illustration, we don't get a move of God unless we put forth an effort for a move of God. It's not like you just walk in here and a move of God, boom, falls down. It takes people praying, pre-service prayer. It takes musicians practicing every single week. It takes vocalists singing every single week. It takes the saints of God that come into the sanctuary and worship God. It takes work. But when you work, there's a success that comes because you put forth the effort. Amen. Praise God. And so that's, that's what we do. That's what we do. And a reward 
For when he is tested, he shall receive the crown of life. There is a reward that is promised to the believer that meets the test. He receives the crown of life. Now, this word crown sometimes refers to a royal crown. But since we are talking about an athletic trying or enduring, enduring, it is a race, then it's probably more frequently understood to be the laurel wreath that is given to the victorious athlete. First Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 25 talks about running a race and receiving the prize or the crown. It symbolizes glory and honor. The crown is an emblem of spiritual success, and it is a, it is a crown. It is a laurel wreath that is placed. And so the scripture said when you are tested and you endure, you're going to receive a crown of life. Praise God. There is a reward that is given which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Has God ever let you down? Has God ever? <laughs> Sometimes people will. They will. What is the phrase? Overpromise and underdeliver. You don't want to do that in a business sense. You want it to be the reverse. Has God ever overpromised and underdelivered to you? Praise God. I wish I had some more people that really believe that that's not the case here. Has God ever overpromised and underdelivered? Has He always promised? what he said he was going to be and do, and has he measured up to that? Ladies and gentlemen, I haven't. I've fluctuated. I've been up and down. But I want to tell you right now, flat-footed, with my shoulders square back and my head held high, God has never, ever failed me, never let me down. Everything that he has promised, he has been faithful to, and he is worth praise. Amen. Praise God. And so he promises a reward to those that successfully meet the test. And that is the reward of life. He is going to give to us a crown of life. He's not talking about a physical life. We're here in the physical life and we're working our way through the testing. But he said if you endure and you are steadfast, that there is going to be a crown of life that is something beyond this physical life, but it is an eternal life. This is one of the things that makes us unique. We believe that this life is not all there is. We believe that there is more to life than just this, that God has promised to us something greater and something better that goes all the way into eternity. And so Jesus said, I'm going to give you a crown of life that goes beyond just this life. And the New Testament consistently invites us to, to contemplate the inheritance that we have that awaits us beyond this life. There is a certain strength that comes 
in that. It is a marvelous source of strength. Sometimes when I look at this life, I'm very, very disappointed, even though there are some things in this life that I enjoy. But when I look at this life, I'm saying to myself, and we should all be saying the same thing, this is a fallen world. There has got to be more than just this world. We want to work to redeem this world, but God has something better for us. Amen. That becomes a strength to me because I'm hanging on because I know that there is going to be a redeemed world. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's not going to be any more pain. There's not going to be any more tears. There's not going to be any more crying. Praise God. Heaven is going to be worth every minute that I exercise and practice here. I'm not practicing for the accolades of this world, but I am practicing for the accolades of the other world that is coming and God's going to provide that to me. I know this body's going to break down. Nobody likes to get old, but I know there's coming a day where this mortal body is going to put on an immortality and I'm going to see him as he is. <laughs> Praise God. And so there's a strength there's a strength. Now, we don't just always live for God because of the reward. We live for God because of the mission of God and the work of God. That's why we're living for God. It's not a, it's not a, a reward-based system, but it's there. It is there, and there is a crown of life for those individuals that stay steadfast in the midst of testing. And these hardships and afflictions that meet us, they're going to produce some stuff in us. They're going to lead us to God's reward if we endure in faith. But here's a caveat, okay? There's a caveat. And the caveat is that if we don't have the right attitude, then this can have a harmful effect on us. And this is what James is getting ready to address in verse number 13. He is saying these things are going to take place, but it's very, very serious. And that's where verse 16 comes in. Do not err, brethren. And this is what he is getting ready to transition into. So look at verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. This is a wrong attitude, James says. And the attitude is to blame God for the enticement to sin that accompanies trials. Let no person say when they're tempted, I'm tempted of God. There is an enticement to blame God. The Old Testament is very, very clear that God did test people. And if you want to use the word temptation, okay, but... It's the same thing, test or temptation. And in the Old Testament, God did, in fact, test people, but he tested people to their obedience. He tested Abraham when he ordered him to sacrifice his son Isaac. He wanted to know, Isaac, <clears throat> Abraham, will you obey me in the middle of the testing? And as a matter of fact, he tested Israel by leaving them surrounded by pagan nations. They're still going to be there. They're going to test you, but I want you to be obedient 
to the one true living God. They're going to follow a different system, a different worship system, different ideology, idolatry. There's a lot of things that are going to be a testing to you. But I want to know, do you really love me? And are you really going to be called the people by my name? Because I am a jealous God. And my intention is I'll be your God, but I want you to be my people. And it's the same thing in the world that we live in today. Praise God. There's a different ideology. There's a lot of idolatry. There's a lot of stuff that could test us. But what God is looking for are apostolic believers that will say, it doesn't matter what the world tests us with, we are emphatically the people of God. And I'm going to live for God in the middle of that world the test is going to come, but I'm still going to be true to my walk with God. I don't want to be tainted by the world. I don't want to look like the world. I don't want to speak like the world. And the reason why is I serve the one true living God. He's not a dead God, but he is a living God. I want to serve him with everything that I've got. I don't want to be pulled back and forth. I want him to know there is a people called by your name that is willing to live out their lives because they love you. Not based on rules, not based on regulation, but because we recognize you brought us a mighty, mighty long way. You have pulled us out of the miry clay. You have drawn us out of Egyptian bondage and you've given to us a redemption and we worship you because of that. Hallelujah. Oh, I need some help here right now. Stop trying to look like the world. Take all that stuff off that you think is going to make you identify with the world. It's not worth it. God's worth it. God does test. He does test our obedience. However, however... While God may test or prove his servants in order to strengthen their faith, God never puts you to a test to make you debilitated. He didn't put Abraham through the test to make him weaker. He put him through the test to make him stronger. Because Abraham never knew him as Jehovah Jireh. But when God made himself a sacrifice, Abraham said in this place, he is Jehovah Jireh, the God that brings provision. And he came out of the test stronger, not weaker. Israel, through all their testing, were to come out stronger, not weaker. God does not seek to induce sin and destroy people's faith. Now, it's interesting because James seems to make a switch here from the outer trial, the testing, the outer trial, to an inner temptation. Now, as he's talking in these verses, he's describing not necessarily an external trial or difficulty, but now he's talking about being drawn away of an individual's own desires. And so it becomes an internal temptation. And that's important to note. This idea had become an excuse, a familiar problem to people who stress the sovereignty of God. If temptation comes from God, 
then how could one resist it? <laughs> and so therefore, when the desire or temptation comes, if God is sovereign, then there is no way that I'll be able to overcome it. So because God is sovereign, so I will just succumb to the temptation. I want you to know here tonight that is an excuse because the scripture said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Jesus overcame sin. And since he overcomes the desires of sin, he wants other people to overcome. You are an overcomer. Paul said, you're an overcomer. You can live for God. You can make it because there is a God that is not inducing you to temptation, but that is building you up. And he wants you to know that you can make it in every type of testing and difficulty that comes your way. You're more than a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. It doesn't matter to me that you fell on your face yesterday. Get up and say, I am more than a conqueror. God is not driving me to this. He's not one that's going to tempt me into this. He's one that's going to give me power to overcome this. God, praise God, praise God. Let no person say when they're tempted, I'm tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil. That's his character, his nature. So therefore, he does not tempt other people because his whole purpose is to put us in his image so that we are more than a conqueror. Verse number 14. But every man that is tempted... For every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The person facing adversity must not attempt to excuse any failure to resist temptation by blaming that on God, says James. If you want to blame somebody, you only have yourself to consider because temptation comes from your own desires. And this desire, as is most often used in the New Testament, it refers to fleshly, selfish, illicit desire. Although the word often describes sexual passions, the use of the singular here, his own lust, suggests a broader conception. You can desire a lot of things. You can desire power. You can desire money. You can desire a lot of things. And so this is broad in its perspective. This evil impulse, when he is drawn away of his own desires, his own or her own evil impulse, it lures and entices people. Temptation springs from this. And the Im imagery that is here, this enticement, the best one is probably fishing. Desire 
is like the hook with its bait that first entices its prey and then drags it away. How many, how many fishermen, fisherwomen do we have in the house? Raise your hand high so we can see you. Fishing is the most boring thing in the entire world. I suppose, unless you're catching fish, then it's different. <laughs> Desire is like the hook with its bait that entices the prey and then drags it away. And if the superficial attractiveness of desire is not strenuously resisted, a person can become hooked on it, unable to escape from its lure. There's some lures that are going to go by and some desires that go by. Be very, very careful because there's an enticement there. And then when you get hooked by the lure, it drags you away and you become hooked on it. Our world is so full of addiction. It's a sad, sad state of affairs. And I'm not downplaying any addiction because once you get addicted to something, it's hard to unhook yourself from it. And there's a lot of people and a lot of things and a lot of programs that try to disattach you from being hooked into something that enticed you. I want to preach from this pulpit and say the gospel message is still the most powerful thing that can disattach you from addictions. Is there anybody that can testify? I was strung out. I was definitely hooked. I had become enticed. But God pulled me out of that situation. And I'm here in the house of God because of God's mercy and power. Hallelujah. Don't let him run by himself, fellas. Run with him. Praise God. Somebody clap your hands and thank the Lord that you've got a testimony of God's ability and power to remove you from every addiction and every difficulty. Praise God. Now I want you to give a hand clap to all those young men that followed him around. Praise God. I want you to give a double hand clap to Garrett for running with the choir robe on. This is hot. Praise God. You get hooked. It's hard to escape. And notice James never said anything about Satan, the devil, the accuser, the brother, anything. Because he wants to make this centered on personal responsibility. Some people will blame God for their problems, and then some people blame the devil for their problems, and the real problem is themselves. Praise God. I found out the world is a problem, and the devil is a problem, but the greatest problem <laughs> is me. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Praise God. Individual responsibility. Every man is tempted. When he is tempted, he is drawn away of his own desires. And he is enticed. Verse number 15. Then when lust, his desires, hath conceived, 
It bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Desire in and of itself is not the sin. There's some desires that are perfectly rendered in the scripture as being a true desire. It's when a person, by an act of the will, assents to the enticement that sin results. It's an action. <laughs> it's an action. Enticement happens every single day that will produce desires that will arise in your emotional makeup because you're a human. And that human condition is not a sin in and of itself. It is the ascent or the activation of the desire that becomes a problem. That's the problem. Enticement happens every single day. When you step out of your door or before you ever get outside of your door because there's so many messages and images that bombard you on a daily basis. I need to make this very, very clear. You don't judge based on the desire. You judge on the act of the will. You don't base something on what someone may see. You base it on what someone may do. You're going to kill somebody that is dealing with their desires but consciously saying on a daily basis, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not watching that. I'm not entertaining that. And then that should be where, where you should put all of your attention on is whether or not you're doing or not doing it. Not based upon the desire or what is being seen. There's a lot of stuff that comes in your head, but you don't let a bird build a nest on your head. Every bird that flies by, there's a lot of things that fly by, but you don't let it take up resonance and you don't activate it. You don't put it into action. You stop it because there's a conscious will that says, I am not going to do that. I'm not going that direction. And if that individual is not doing that and not going that direction, don't judge them on the desire or the look or what they're seeing judge them on what they're doing man you judge me on the things I see every single day and you want to judge based on where my my attention may linger for a moment I'm going to be in big trouble when I drive to church here sometimes I drive down Chester Avenue There's a lot of things not so desirable on that track. But, uh, the difficulty in this whole discussion here about lust conceiving is, is the act of the will and the ascent to its enticement. That's where sin results. You will kill somebody if you try to judge them on their desires or what they see or the temptations. There's a lot of temptation. If desire is not working for you, temptation. 
If the temptation is what you're going to judge me on, I'm in big, big trouble. I'm thankful God doesn't judge me based on the temptation. Because there's a lot of temptation. We live in a modern era. Social media and a lot of stuff has created a, a lot of temptation. And a lot of stuff both that I want to see and don't want to see. In life, walking down the street, on billboards, social media, things that pop up in my email. There's a lot of stuff. But God doesn't judge me based on what I'm seeing. What God judge me judges me on is what I'm doing with what is coming my way. And I want to establish to myself and to God and to my family, I'm going to be a righteous man of God. I am not going to activate all that confusion and junk that is out there in the world. I'm going to live for God, be in the house of God. I'm going to worship. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do everything I can to fight off the onslaught of the enemy. And God judges me based on the action. The action. The action, when lust hath conceived, James is drawing from childbirth and maturation. And so it's like a mother that gives birth to sin, her child. When a woman, when lust hath conceived, it brings forth it, a child. It brings forth it, and then the child, if it allows to continue and become full grown, it gives birth in turn to death. This is a heavy, heavy passage of scripture. I just want to say this right here. If, if you allow some things to be planted into your spirit and there is a conception and birthing process, it's going to produce something and then what it produces ultimately is going to bring death and there's a lot of consequences. Stop it before it ever gets to death. Don't let it become full grown. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. This is why every church service is powerful. Because in many cases, God is able to reach out and arrest someone's conscience and turn them and redirect them from where they're going. So there is not a conception and a bringing forth and then a full-grown process that brings forth death this ladies and gentlemen right here is of the devil this is exactly what god wants to do with every single one of you young people listen to me he would love to bring forth this process in your life that is going to produce consequences that may last you an entire lifetime that is of the devil sin is of the devil i hate sin i abhor sin because of what happens when that child gets full grown and death occurs, nobody is happy with it. Everybody is disappointed. It's a sad state of affairs. Let it not be said in the house of God that this takes place, but God somehow reverse the process and bring life, not death. Praise God, every single one of us have seen situations where the consequences that have been produced are deadly. It's almost 
as if James is pulling a Old Testament figure that comes from Proverbs. He, he actually talks about wisdom, and we've already talked about that. But he, it seems like he may have this idea of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 9, who take her debt, her guests, into the depths of hell. And in Proverbs, especially 1 through 9, you can see three characters that are there. They're calling out to the young man and the young woman. There is folly, and folly is just stupidity, getting caught up in crazy stuff. And some of the imagery that is there is robbing, stealing, abusing. This character is there in Proverbs. And then there's wisdom. Wisdom is running around up on the walls of the city, calling to people in the city, trying to capture the young person's attention. And then there is the strange woman. And the strange woman is a woman of sexuality, a man of sexuality. It's a personification of sexuality that should not be just attached to a woman, but can also be attached to a man. And in this personification, it entices like the lure and it pulls young people into that trap. And the wise men said, the way to her house is like walking into the depths of hell. And James is, has a lot of illusions that connect there. And then verse number 16, he says, do not err, my beloved brethren. This is a transition verse between verses 12 through 15, where James is talking about don't blame things on God. It's a responsibility, a human responsibility. And then what is going to follow in the last two verses. The attributing to God of evil intent, tempting people, is a serious matter, says James. And he wants to make sure that his readers are not deceived about this. This is not a God thing. It's not God driving you to do this. It's the enticement of your own desires. And then he transitions into verse 17 and 18. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. Father of lights, this is the only place where this is ever mentioned in terms of referencing God. It's unique. Father of lights. Father of lights. Say with me. Father of lights. With whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James points out the negative. And then he turns those verses on its head when he says, but every good gift, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. You know what the perfect gift is he's talking about? This is what I think. I think he's talking about the gift of the Holy Ghost. I think he's talking about a new birth experience. I think what he's saying is the perfect gift that can be received in light of all of this desire and enticement and sin and death and degradation is the power of the Holy Ghost that comes from God. And when it comes from God, it is a gift. It is a perfect 
gift. You can't get any better than the infilling of the Holy Ghost. You can't get any better than the power of the Holy Ghost. It will make you powerful. It will transform your world. It will change your thinking. It will turn things upside down. Hallelujah. Is there anybody that would testify with me when I received the Holy Ghost? It was the best gift that anybody could have ever, ever, ever given to me. Money couldn't buy it. You couldn't be good enough. But the Father of lights, he shined down into a dark world and he filled you with the Holy Ghost. Anybody excited about the Holy Ghost? Anybody thankful for the Spirit of God that is on the inside of you that gives you the ability to rise above death and sin and degradation and you've got your hands lifted high in the sanctuary. Hallelujah. Let's thank the Lord for the Holy Ghost tonight. Praise God, praise God, praise God. He's the father of lights. That's a unique description. He's, James has an astronomical twist here. He's the creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And did you know that galaxies are still being discovered? Galaxies like Andromedia galaxy that you can see. It's, it's, it's one of the ones that you can see with the unaided eye if you're on a, in, on a clear night. Scientists now know that the universe is expanding at an ever-increasing rate. And the idea that there is something beyond the universe would imply that the universe has an edge. And scientists are saying that's kind of tricky because they aren't certain if there is a drop-off that exists. I can help them out. I'm not a scientist. But I could tell them this. The only reason you think the galaxy is expanding is because technology is allowing you to see more that's out there. And when you see what's out there, it keeps going out there. And you're never going to get to the end of it because this is how big and great and and fabulous and marvelous the father of lights is he's the creator of all things he's the originator of all things you will never get to the end of who he is and yet that same father of lights said I'm going to drop something into the world called the Holy Ghost and I'm going to fill people fallen people with the Holy Ghost Creation is variable and changes. We've had a few days of fog here lately. I don't remember it being like this in a long, long time that we've had fog that kind of just comes in and just packs in like that. The weather changes. My mother was in Pismo. It was 90 degrees while we were over here freezing to death. Somebody was in San Diego, said it was 85, 90 degrees. We're packed in in fog here. The weather changes. It changes all the time. The seasons change, but God doesn't change. <laughs> Praise God. I said, God doesn't change. He's faithful. He is consistent. I may have wandered around in the desert for a long time, but God has always remained 
remain true. He's the father of lights. There is no, there's not even a shadow of turning because when the light comes down from the father of lights, there is no shadow. There's no shadow of turning. He is faithful. He is consistent. He is good. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the ending. He is everything that I need. If I need an anchor, I know that I can hang on to him. His word is an anchor. His word is a strength to me. Oh, clap your hands tonight. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. God is constant, and his focus is laser sharp on redemption. Amen. He does not change. I'm here to redeem the world and redeem people in the world. The cross is paramount. It's the focus of everything, the center of everything, and it will continue to be the center of everything until there is a full redemption of heaven and earth. Praise God. Our last verse tonight, verse 18. Of his own will begat. James, when he's talking about sin and lust, when lust hath conceived. Here he says of his own will, God begat. What James is saying is God turns everything on its head. Lust conceives, brings forth all these things, sin, death. But when God conceives... He conceives us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What, what, is the, what is the word of truth, do you think? I think the word of truth is the gospel. He conceives in us the word of truth. The Bible says, buy the truth and sell it not. Anybody thankful for the truth that God revealed to you? It was the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits. He takes us from, James takes us from the negative picture to the positive picture. And the gospel and the word of truth through a new birth experience. And then he says, we are the first fruits. We're the first fruits that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. He has redeemed us from fallenness. And he started in us a process in which we ourselves are the first fruits of what he's going to do. It's starting with us, the first fruits. But one of these days, God is going to take the fallen world. And we are a marker to individuals that those folks are the first fruits because what God is going to do in the future, he's going to redeem the entire world. And he's going to change everything and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and he's going to reorder everything. And instead of a fallen world, he's going to create a heavenly world and 
Just so you know, when you see those apostolic folks that have been filled with the Holy Ghost with uplifted hands and they're worshiping God, they are the first fruits. He's starting with them. And then he's going to do great things in the future. You are the recipient of being the first fruit of what God is going to do in the future. And instead of there being death, there is life. And instead of there being difficulty and pain and suffering, there is a, an unlimited amount of power and strength and anointing. As God turns on its head everything that sin does, God says, I'll conceive something completely different that is going to be powerful and amazing. And I'm going to make you the first fruits. I'm going to plant something in you. And it's going to conceive. And it's going to grow. As we stand together, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 19 is a parallel passage of scripture. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity. Not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, listen. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. The whole creation is groaning and travailing. And so are we, but we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Praise God. And James ends this passage of Scripture here by saying, He has come to bring spiritual life and not death. And what is planted in you will conceive the fruit of the Spirit. Praise God. It's the first fruits. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Praise God. You know what I've always done when I've studied this passage of Scripture? I've always got stuck on the terrible stuff. Lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth death. When it's finished, it brings forth death. But I never followed through the last two verses where James turns it all upon its head. And he said, if the world is full of death and sin and enticement, there is a God that's going to bring a promise, a gift, a power, an anointing that's going to provide the first fruits of the Spirit into your life, and it's going to grow, and it's going to flourish, and it's a testimony that even goes into the future of what God is richly going to do. Praise God. We need to lift our hands and thank the Lord for the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, hallelujah, that has been conceived and begat in us. Hallelujah. Praise God. God, I want you to know I don't feel worthy to be a first fruit. Man, there's a lot riding on what you're going to do in the future, and yet you're using me to testify about that. 
Praise God, praise God, praise God. What are the consequences of sin? Death, what are the consequences of the fruit of the Spirit and what God is doing? I'll tell you, there's a lot of good things. There's revival. There's a move of God. There's a strength of God, an anointing of God, because God wants to produce good things as the fruit of the Spirit. Hallelujah, not death, but life. Praise God. Can we lift our hands and worship the Lord together? Come on, saints of God, endure. Endure. There's a crown of life. Praise God. There is a do not hear. It's not planned on God. God wants to elevate you. God wants to strengthen you. God declares that you are more than a conqueror. in this place tonight. I know it's Tuesday night Bible study, but the Word has done a work in this place. Praise God, you need to praise the Lord and say, God, I am a conqueror. I am more than an overcomer. Because of your spirit, because of your ability, because of your anointing, Lord. Because the enemy would like to mire us in the negative part of that passage of Scripture and take our attention off of what God begets and conceives in us. And then every single failure and difficulty, he will remind us constantly and try to leverage us. I just feel tonight that it would be good for every person. Hallelujah. If you feel this in the Holy Ghost, to step out and walk to this front as an admission to God that God you have declared me to be more than a conqueror and I want something planted in me that is greater than what the world would plant in me and bring to destruction praise God but I want you to plant some things in me that's going to bring 